This is Steve Kim. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hey guys, we are going to wrap up our three-part series on Did Jesus Dehumanize with the story of the Syrophoenician woman. In the previous two weeks, we talked about the parable of ten minas, and we talked about the cleansing of the temple. In all of these cases, it seems that Jesus is doing something that is rather out of character, where he even seems to be dehumanizing other people. So again, Andy released a book. Let's let's make sure to mention this. And there have been some critics of Christianity that have been challenging us by leaving these verses where Jesus seems to be dehumanizing other people. And we've been addressing these, and we're going to wrap up our three-part series by talking about one that actually has really bothered me for a long time, the story of the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman. Andy, what has been your experience like with this one particular story? Has it bothered you as much as it has bothered me? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you would say that. I would say that of the three passages that we've looked at, I would actually rank this one as number two for me. Really? I okay. would say the the first one that we addressed would have been number one for, for me. So the story of the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman that we're going to talk about today comes in two places. One is in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, and the other is in Matthew chapter 15, 21 to 28. Now, we're going to specifically use the passage from Matthew to discuss this this story. But by all means, uh, listeners and viewers, if you want to read the uh, other account, feel free to go to Mark chapter 7 as well. So let me just read for you and just kind of set the stage for this thing. This is the account of the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 21. So if you have your Bibles with you, open it up, Matthew 15, 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So that's the story. And if you are like most Christians, the part that really stood out at you is the part where Jesus says, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Because what he's essentially doing here is he's equating the Syrophoenician woman, who is a Gentile, the Canaanite woman, with a dog. And so you look at that and go, oh, how could Jesus be so racist here? 
And so especially in our sort of modern sensibilities, we're very sensitive to racism. And we look at that and go, wow, even Jesus, he is the product of his, his own time and his own culture. So even he can't help himself sort of have this racist attitude towards people that are outside of his ethnic group. Here's an example of Jesus dehumanizing. And I think it might be helpful just to acknowledge what dehumanization is or define what dehumanization is. I don't, I don't think that we've actually done that in, in the other episode. So let's just take a moment to do that because this is so clear in this particular passage in that dehumanization takes place in one of two ways, either to see a human as an object or an animal. So the idea of dehumanization is to see somebody as less than human. And I think why this passage causes a, a lot of angst for people is, you know, as they hear their reading, you know, Jesus equating this Canaanite woman, this non-Jew, as a dog. And that's an important aspect of what's happening here as we get into this passage. There's two people at play in this that are being referred to. First, there's the child which represents Israel in the story. And we're going to see that more as we get into the subject. And then there's the dog in the story. And the dog is representing non-Jews. A question then that needs to be raised is, is Jesus saying then that Jews are children and non-Jews are dogs? And now, listeners, before we continue, a message from our very own Steve Kim. Hi listeners, Andy's new book, Reclaimed, How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World, was released a few weeks ago, and we've been receiving some great feedback from those who picked up a copy and read it. If you haven't picked up your copy, Andy's book is available at all major book retailers. If you have read it and enjoyed it, and if you would like to support Andy's work in some way, here's a relatively quick and simple way to do it. Please go onto the website of wherever you purchase the book and leave a positive review. By doing so, you will help potential readers discover the book and build confidence in them of the quality of the book. Thank you for your support. And now back to our podcast. Here, I find that um, I may be getting a little bit ahead of myself here. A lot of the times... Christians look at the word dogs, and if you actually look at the Greek word behind it, the original word, the word is kunarion, which is actually a sort of the softer form of the word kuon, which is dogs, like wild dogs. The difference between the word kuon and kunarion is kind of like when my kids call me dad versus daddy, right? So there's the diminutive form, and so it's supposed to be more endearing, that sort of a thing. But that still doesn't really help us much, does it? Because <laughs> no. it is still the fact that Jesus is calling, might be a household pet, but not in the modern sense even, because back then you didn't just have dogs for the sake of having companions as much as they had dogs for work. Like they had guard dogs and they had dogs for different purposes. So it's not even... All that endearing, if you actually think about it. And even if it's endearing, it's still the fact that he's calling right, the Jews children and Gentiles dogs. So it doesn't really help. And so for me, I suggest to people, don't go that route. It's not going to help you much. Now, I think something's interesting here. You know, historically, the people group, if you will, 
that has been dehumanized the most, which would probably surprise most people, isn't even women, although women would be high on that list, sadly. It's, in fact, children. Historically, children have been dehumanized throughout cultures. And so if we were going to apply that same hermeneutic, it would also mean that Jesus is dehumanizing the Jews, or at least belittling them, if you're going to take that kind of wooden reading of this. However, one of the things that we have been talking about for these last three sessions, which Steve and I were talking about this, that we have absolutely loved <laughs> reading the Bible together and talking about, you know, the, the science of interpretation, hermeneutics, you know, how, how do we read this and, and what is the meaning here? Uh, Steve and I have thoroughly enjoyed doing this together. Maybe we should do more of these in the future. I know there are a few other hard sayings of Jesus that we probably could have gone over, but three is a good number, so we're going to wrap it up this week. (laughs) But just so our listeners know, maybe we'll come back and revisit some of these passages. Yeah, or as always, we are open to listeners sending in suggestions, which we get regularly things to talk about in the news, which has made doing this three-part series difficult because people have been sending us so many requests to talk on other things. But we really felt like we needed to address these passages. Uh, But you can always send in a passage for us to take a look at. What we want to do now, as we've kind of identified this passage, and we've really done what a lot of people do. They've broken the Bible up into chapters and verses. They've honed in on a specific section of of verses by stripping it out of its context and then get themselves confused as to what's happening and draw false conclusions such as, man, Jesus is a jerk again, being a jerk to this poor Canaanite woman who's suffering and refers to her as a dog. What I hope that, you know, in these three parts that has really come out is, listen, don't do that. Don't stop it. Don't do that with the Bible. Make sure that you that you read it in its context. And that means that you got to back up. And in this section, you really got to back up. You got to back up all the way beyond chapter 14 and get a running head start into this section, this new episode, if you will. And the Bible in many ways, particularly the New Testament, I mean, the Gospels, is broken up very much like a like a TV show. It has these episodes. Then you kind of go to a commercial break and you come back, you know, and you're you're heading into a new part of the story. So I want to go where this episode really begins. And then let's take a look at this passage in its context. And what you see is that, again, Jesus is doing the very opposite. He's not dehumanizing the Canaanite woman. What we're going to see is he's, in fact, humanizing her. And I've said this before. This is one of those cases where... It just seems out of character for Jesus. So knowing what we know of Jesus, sort of the fuller picture of Jesus, you know, he's the kind of guy, love your enemies and love your neighbor as yourself. And we even see in the story of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan becomes the hero of the story, right? So when you come to a passage like this, that's where it's, even the fact that it seems to us that it's out of character says something. These are the, the exceptions that prove the rule. And in fact, as I was reading different passages here, I was struck by the similarity between this story and the story of this Roman centurion that comes to Jesus, whose servant that he favors is dying. In fact, let me let me read that for you. That comes in 
the same gospel in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. So listeners, if you have your Bible open with you, Matthew 8, verse 5, that's where it starts. So when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him. Now, this is what he says about this Gentile centurion. I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. So I read that and I go, okay, there, there's a lot of similarities between this story and the story of the Canaanite woman. And I just find it really interesting that Jesus' response is very different because with the centurion, he's right away like, I'll, I'll come and heal him, right? And the centurion says, no, 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 you don't need to do that. But here, Jesus is not answering a single word, right? So what's going on here? Gentiles, both of them, but he's... In this case, he's treating her very differently. Is it because she's a woman or what's going on here? And so so this gives me an idea that whatever Jesus is doing here, there's something more under the surface. Mm. You're right, Steve. Clearly, we're being clued in that something's happening. Now, I would say as well with the passage that you brought up, we are seeing foreshadowing taking place there, significant foreshadowing. We're going to be seeing even more significant foreshadowing taking place in this. And this is this is a very instructive moment for the disciples and uh, is the reason why they've included it into the Gospels. Again, it's not something that they remembered. It's something that they chose to put in here for you to remember. Now, Steve, let's go all the way back to chapter 13. I want to start in verse 53. And I would love for you to start reading, and I'm going to pause you along the way. Because we got limited time, we're just going to make some notes along the way as we lead up to the passage that we're looking at. So this is Matthew 13, starting with verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So we're already seeing a setup here, a lack of faith, right? So we're going we're gonna to see that as we're going to get into this next section, faith is a significant aspect of what's going to be highlighted through a series of stories and teaching. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus, his hometown of Nazareth, that the people are rejecting him. 
and this lack of faith is affecting the miracles that are, that are taking place. And now we're going to get into this next section. We're going to continue, but this should already tip us off as readers. Okay, there's something going on here, and we're going to learn about faith. So here's Matthew chapter 14, starting with verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. So we've already seen in the first section that there's these Jews and they're rejecting Jesus. Now we're seeing with Herod, we've got another Jew, but is rejecting who? Is rejecting John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is rejected. And what John's doing, by the way, and a lot of Christians don't think about this, is you have to ask, you know, why is he called John the Baptist? Like, what is his baptism? What does it even mean? Because I think a lot of people kind of have this post-gospel understanding of baptism and they kind of impute it, or they're just not even sure what to do with John. But John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. He's calling the people to repent as a prophet. He's, he's doing this so that the people would turn from their sin and God would send his Messiah to come and rescue the people. This, this is how they understand the work of John. And here you've got a Jew, though, that is rejecting John and ultimately murders John. And again, we're seeing this foreshadowing taking place of Israel is divided. So, with this in mind now, notice John has just been murdered, Jesus has been told about it, and he is saddened by it, and we're going to see what's going to happen next. So, now we're in verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Um, Notice the word send away, because this is going to pop up a few more times. Especially when the Canaanite woman comes, the disciples are saying the same thing. Send her away. She's crying out after us. And you'll hear that again because that story of the Canaanite woman is actually sandwiched between the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. And there again, uh, you will hear the word send away being brought up. So the disciples are saying, send them away so they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. 
you give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Notice, this is key to what's happening here. Jesus has gone out and he's teaching, but where is he teaching? He's teaching in a Jewish area. He's speaking to Jews. He's teaching and he's healing among them. Now, they get hungry, right? And he feeds them. And we're starting to see that this is one of those moments, you know, that we're seeing the power of Jesus, that he can heal them and he can feed them, that he's got that sort of power. Now, you would imagine then that as the disciples are watching this, that this should be having some sort of effect, that this should be encouraging and inspiring the the disciples' faith. But let's keep focused here. So, we're seeing another moment of faith. They don't need to be sent away that Jesus can feed them. Now, let's continue on verse 22. Chapter 14, verse 22, it says, starting on from there, Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cry out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. So here's another episode of faith. And we're already noticing some similar terminology of what's happening with the Canaanite woman and what just happened here with Peter as Peter cries out for Jesus to save him. But instead of having great faith, Peter has little faith. And Jesus challenges him, why did you doubt? And you can only imagine, I mean, geez, Peter, you know, you've already seen all these miracles. You've seen him feed 5,000 or over 5,000 people. Now that we've got this context in place, what's going to happen now in chapter 15 is going to start making sense. And all these pieces are going to be falling into place as we come back to this Canaanite woman. And I know that we've been taking a long time to get into this. 
But that's what needs to happen if, you know, when when you read something, you got to take into account all of what's being communicated or else it's easy to get confused. So now let's jump into this. Let's keep reading chapter 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Let me just pause you real quick there, just just so that people can understand what's happening. At this time there was a tradition that was taking place of the rabbis where laws would be debated and then the consensus would dictate which would be the interpretation. In a moment here, we're going to see where Jesus is going to chastise this human wisdom, and that's what he'll get at in a moment. But I just want to explain to what, what's happening here. Jesus is saying, you know, the Old Testament tells you, you know, God's wisdom tells you to honor your father and your mother. However, in your debates over this, you've decided that there can be a workaround where if you take something, some money, say, and you devote it to God, then you don't have to honor your father and mother with it. And so, notice what he's saying here, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. So, this is a hypothetical son, let's say, talking to his father. The social context is, this is before the days of old age security coming from the government. It's not like you have the social safety net. And one of the reasons you had lots of children- Well, you did have a social safety net. It was called your kids. Your kids, exactly, right? <laughs> so it's it's nothing from the government or anything like that. And so that's why you had lots of children because for one, infant mortality rate is high. So you, you wanna have as many of them as you can. And that way you also have more people to work And so the household becomes wealthier. And then in your old age, whatever surviving children might actually take care of you in your old age. And that's what the children expected to do when they're young. And then they expected when they got older, their children would help them. Like that's how the system worked. So imagine a son saying, hey, whatever help you might have received from me, it's a gift devoted to God. You are robbing your parents of their livelihood. In other words, they're taking bread out of their mouths and giving it to God. And so this is where the religious leaders of the day, they were saying, well, it's okay to do that. If it's devoted to God, you don't have to give it to your parents. And Jesus is basically chastising the religious leaders. So while the religious leaders are kind of fussing over the washing of the hands, Jesus is saying, you've got a bigger problem here. You shouldn't be worrying about whether my disciples wash their hands or not. You challenge God's wisdom in doing this. And now, as we're going to continue to read, what you're going to see is Jesus is really going to hone in on the heart of the issue. Okay, so let me back up to verse 5 and start from there. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Notice what Jesus is saying here. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So what, given that, what does God want? Well, God doesn't want your lip service, right? What God wants is your heart. And this is something Jesus talks about over and over again. What does God want? What's the most important commandment? Love God. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, love God with everything that is to be a human being. That's what God wants. And we see then, they worship me in vain. That's powerful, right? Jesus is quoting here from the Old Testament. Man, I don't want to be worshiping God in vain. My translation says, the teachings are merely human rules. And clearly, this is what Jesus is getting at. And that's why I wanted you to understand that the way that the rabbinic system worked is to debate an idea and then the consensus of the interpretation would become the tradition. And Jesus is saying that you're defaulting to human wisdom. And in doing so, you've made it into this religiosity. You've you've made it into a bunch of rules. And Steve and I actually, before we started this podcast, we were laughing because we're like, how serendipitous was it that we started this three-part series with the verses that we've looked at? because they really have led up to this third one, the first one dealing with the heart of serving God. And as we looked at last week with the cleansing of the temple, what what's Jesus condemning? He's condemning this system of religion that is, is not healing the people. And really, as you see from the Old Testament into the New Testament, it's just a foreshadowing of what is going to be necessary, that religion can't save you. That we can't save ourselves, but that God can and does through the person of Jesus and through his compassion. And that, as we saw last week, faith is key to that. And now we're really seeing this develop in this section. So, let me continue from verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? I love it. You could only imagine like a smirk coming across Jesus' face, right? Like, of course he knew that this was going to be a challenging word to them. And I think it is important, by the way, to note that Jesus is not offending them just to offend them or to be mean or anything like that. Jesus is challenging them because he wants to change them. He wants to see their heart change. And there are Pharisees that we read that whose hearts are changed. Like Nicodemus, and, for example, exactly. right? in the Gospel of John. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what he wants. But to do that, he's challenging them. Continuing on from verse 13, he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. I just have to chuckle at that. The disciples just don't get it, right? And here's Peter, who is like, in a sense, the representative of the twelve. He doesn't get it. Verse 17, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. 
These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Now, we don't have time to get into this at the moment, but there is this distinction that you see in the Old Testament between ceremonial law and moral law. And what Jesus is getting at here is moral law. Whereas there's these ceremonial laws that really distinguish a people group, particularly in the Old Testament, with regards to the Jews. And this is something that you see in the Old Testament with regards to, say, Ezekiel chapter 36, where the desire that God has is for a transformed heart. And we read in Ezekiel verse 26, 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, what kind of laws are we talking about here? Because we see in the New Testament that the Old Testament ceremonial laws are done away with, such as not mixing fibers or... Uh, yeah, not mixing the seeds that you plant the field with or those kinds of things that were originally instituted to kind of remind the Israelites that they're different from their Canaanite, by the way, neighbors, right? Who always mixed different things. They blurred the boundaries between man and beast. So, you know, they would have bestiality and all that kind of stuff, like all kinds of horrendous practices. And this was supposed to serve as a reminder. But later what ends up happening is with these religious leaders, they start building all these rules around the laws that have been given to them. And on that basis, they start right declaring people clean and unclean, depending on these rules that they created. And then it is after this story, in the context of talking about what's clean, what's unclean, that we encounter the story of the Canaanite woman, Syrophoenician woman, as uh, Mark identifies her comes into the picture, right? So when you look at that, you think, if there ever was an unclean person, here is that one. She's a woman, right? She's a Gentile, a Canaanite, specifically Syrophoenician, who's got a daughter who's demon-possessed. And so for her to be even following Jesus to get help, like this is audacious of her. This is the kind of person, in this context of clean and unclean, like that's sort of the picture that we're supposed to get out of, okay, who is this Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite woman? Yeah, so we're starting to see all these pieces then coming together. We're talking about the subject of faith, and we're talking about the lack of faith amongst the Jews. Now, now Jesus cares for the Jews, and he's seeking to serve the Jews, but in his hometown, there's this lack of faith. In his disciples, there's this lack of faith. And even in the religious leaders, there's the lack of the right kind of faith. Although they are religious and are doing all sorts of things to follow these laws, still Jesus is saying, yeah, but look at your heart. It might look like it's an act of faith, but you're not actually trusting God. You're actually trusting human wisdom, and you're seeking to manipulate it to your own gain. And now in the context of that, we are shifting our focus in this passage away from the Jews, and now we're honing in on a Gentile, and not only a Gentile, a Canaanite Gentile that's a woman 
who's come to Jesus, and what do we find with her? Just to save time, we won't read back through that passage again with, with regards to her, but what do we see? We see that Jesus says, you know, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. So, Jesus is saying, yeah, you have to understand, though, I, I've been sent to the Jews. Now, she knows, though, that Jesus is powerful and sees what he's able to do. So, so this is where we begin to understand that, that this passage starts to fulfill this foreshadowing that we've already been seeing taking place, where there's a lack of faith amongst the Jews, but what we're going to see, we've already seen it, and Steve, you mentioned one of those with the centurion, but you'll we see it more going forward, that there is faith being found in the Gentiles. And as Jesus talks about the children and the dogs, again, this isn't a declaration of identity with regards to this woman, what we begin to see is that this is a juxtaposition of what's taking place in these passages between Gentiles and Jews. And in a moment, we're going to see this even more clearly as we go into what comes after this passage. But the idea being with the analogy, this is what's so critical when when we're doing hermeneutics, right? We're looking at the science of interpretation. So, the idea then is that this is what Jesus is doing is using this as a metaphor. And the idea of a metaphor is to communicate a deeper truth. And so, if you were to take the metaphor literally, you're going to miss the meaning. Now, that's true of English or or language, I should say, in general. This is how metaphor works. So, if you take that literally, you're going to miss what Jesus is doing. But if you take this metaphorically in the sense that it's seeking to communicate, the idea is quite simple. Jesus is saying that the Jews came first, that he was sent first to the Jews. And this lady's saying to him, yeah, but what about there's the rest of us too? And, you know, we have faith as well. And... What then is Jesus' response? You could almost just imagine, you know, this smile coming over Jesus' face, going, exactly, she gets it. Yet the disciples, as we see throughout this, they're having a hard time with this because they just wanted to send this woman away. And you could even imagine that Jesus allowed this to kind of continue to the point of annoying his disciples because he's seeking to teach them. And you have to remember, that's what a disciple is. Disciple is literally a student. It's a student that's following a rabbi, a teacher, and he's seeking to teach him that this message isn't just for the Israelites, it's for the Gentiles, and that there is faith to be found in these Gentiles. And in fact, where Peter had little faith in verse 28, what do we find in the Canaanite woman? We find great great faith. faith. Yeah, exactly. And just to kind of supplement what you're saying, Andy, one of the things that Jesus is doing here He's not just being mean to the Syrophoenician woman, but what he is doing is he is almost like playing the devil's advocate. He is eliciting a response from her. So what's the response going to be? Right, The response is something very different from what he got with the religious leaders or even the disciples who just didn't get it. And the woman responds in the proper way. She still comes to Jesus and says, 
even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table, right? I have faith in you, Jesus, because I know you can do this. Lord, help me. And over, over and over again, you see her referring to him as Lord, the kneeling before him, that sort of thing. There is a kind of submissiveness to this Lord. Now, can I just and so the, pause you there for a second, yeah. Steve? Because I think you're hitting just such a key point here because we just juxtaposed Peter with her with regards to little faith, great faith. But there's also a secondary juxtaposition where Peter cries out to Jesus to save me and she cries out the same thing. Lord, help me. They, you know, they both cry out. But notice that one is crying out out of a lack of faith, but the other one is crying out out of faith. Yeah, that's a good point. That that's really critical here too. It's a, isn't it kind of ironic, right? Well, maybe not ironic. This is interesting that the outside is the same, if you will. They're saying the same things, but the inside is very different, which is what Jesus has been talking about with the religious leaders, right? You guys are concerned about what looks like on the outside, but what's really more important is on the inside. So what that comes down to is that Jesus is kind of saying things that is not exactly what he would say, but he's almost talking from the viewpoint of your everyday Jew or even a religious leader might to elicit a response from her. And the woman, contra the religious leaders and the disciples, she responds correctly. So in a sense, Jesus has given this Gentile Canaanite Syrophoenician woman the honor of teaching the disciples who just don't get it. Mm. So this, this is what Jesus does is it's not even that he just helps her. He actually honors her by giving her a chance to, I mean, the Syrophoenician woman probably didn't know that that's what she was doing. But as far as Jesus was concerned, now the woman is teaching. She's a, she's a disciple. Yeah. She's a student. And, and a disciple who actually has a chance to teach Jesus' own disciple something, right? The 12, for example. <laughs> now, here's the beauty of this is where one would think that this is a dehumanization of the woman. That is not how the disciples would have understood this. You see, his interplay with her and the metaphor he uses is very much representative of the way that a Jew would have viewed a Canaanite. But as Jesus uses that metaphor, he flips it up on its head, and the disciples would have been mind-blown at this moment because Jesus has just extended that ministry that he has to the Jews. He has just extended that ministry to the Gentiles. He has humanized the Gentiles. And this goes like even a step uh, above what Jesus did with the Roman centurion, because if you read in other gospels too, like the fact that he is a Roman military leader and, and an enemy is somewhat mitigated because he's said to be a God-fearer and he helped build a synagogue in town and things like that. But in this case, like this is outside of Galilee. This is outside of where he normally uh, ministers. And here is a Gentile woman who comes. And even in her, Jesus is finding faith. And he commends her for it. So this is this is huge. So this is really interesting. Remember earlier, as we were reading through the story of feeding the five thousand, the the disciples were like, "Send the crowd away so they can go find some food in the village." Jesus says, "No, you feed them." Now we come to the story of the Canaanite woman. 
she's following the crowd. She's crying out to Jesus, and the disciples get annoyed, and they're like, Rabbi, send her away. Right? She's crying out after us. And then right after this story, there's the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. And what you see is Jesus calling his disciples to him, and he says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. And again, that word, and I've looked at even the Greek behind it. It's the same word, apoluo. You you hear it three times. It's interesting that this comes right after the story of the Canaanite woman. Oh, we've got to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Because, Steve, I can't tell you the number of people that have I've talked to that have read that and go, man, it just seems so weird that the Bible would record the same story twice. And for some people, this would raise doubt in them, you know, did the same feeding happen twice, but there's a different number that's being fed? And you're like, no, no, no. Have you backed up and read the whole thing? (laughs) He first feeds 5,000 Jews. Now he is in Gentile land and he's feeding 4,000 Gentiles who are there. Matthew knows exactly why he put that in there (laughs) and he did it for a reason. And he has sandwiched it between this Canaanite woman you know, who, who, you know, you've got these 5,000 Jews that are being fed bread and fish. And here is this lowly Canaanite woman who's like, I will eat the crumbs that fall off your table. And Jesus is saying, no, this message is actually not just for the Jews. Yes, I came to them first, but it's for all people. And we immediately see that as he then feeds thousands of Gentiles, and we begin to see this foreshadowing that's going to be fulfilled through the Gospels. We see this in the book of Acts and throughout the the remainder of the New Testament, that this is a message for both Jews and Gentiles. Now, if you go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is now resurrected, Right, so let's actually go there. And then he is calling the disciples. And this is what he says to the disciples, right? Matthew 28, verse 18 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? All nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. So this is, and if you read it in the book of Acts, this is Jesus' marching order just before he leaves earth. And if you actually turn to Acts chapter 1, this is how Luke records it in the book of Acts. Now, at this point, The disciples, by the way, in the book of Acts, they still don't get it. So after Jesus is raised from the dead, they're still like, so are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? So they're still expecting Jesus to overturn the tables of the Romans, so to speak, right? Save your people already. And then... And then this is what Jesus says to them in Acts 1, verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right, So it starts in Jerusalem and then the wider area of Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. That is where it's headed. And then Paul writes about how this has been God's plan all along. When he came to Abraham and made his covenant, his covenant included 
through your family, all the world will be blessed. All of the world. And then you see God's heart for the foreigners. Like even in Leviticus 19, where, where he tells his people, his chosen people, Israel, don't mistreat the foreigner. Treat them like one of your native born because you yourselves were slaves and foreigners in Egypt, right? Don't mistreat them. This has been God's heart. And we really see that highlighted in Jesus' interaction with the Canaanite woman. And so this is why I thought it was really appropriate that we actually talked about the, the last week's topic, which was cleansing the temple. Remember, we talked about how Jesus basically cleared out the court of Gentiles, and he's going to see this temple destroyed so that the gospel will go forth throughout. So it's not just for the Jews, it's for Gentiles. And so again, listeners, if you're listening to this, we would assume most of you are Gentiles, like Andy and myself, from all corners of the earth. And this gospel, what Jesus is saying here is, it's not just for the Jews, it's for me, it's for Andy, it's for you that are listening. That that gospel is open to everybody. Amen, brother. Dude, I love it. Steve's preaching, man, and uh, <laughs> and I'm loving, dude. I'm I'm in the I'm the choir, dude. I'm just back there singing, Amen. Uh, that's right. God loves all people, and His desire is that all would come into relationship with Him, and that this wouldn't be some sort of religious relationship of laws that you're seeking to follow. That's not what God is after. That God is after you. That he wants to take that heart of stone and he wants to make it into a heart of flesh. And it's our prayer that you would come to place your trust in him, in faith, the right kind of faith, the kind of faith that kneels, the kind of faith that cries out, save me, and then the kind of faith that is teachable as we seek to be the kinds of worshipers that God desires, that loves God, but that also loves other people that humanizes people. That's what he's after. That's what he taught. And more than that, that's what he did. That's why I'm a Christian. Dude, this fires me up. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's edition of the AC Podcast. Andy and I, we said this over and over again, but we really enjoyed this series and maybe we'll get to come back to it because as we delve into scripture together, man, there's just so much that we can look at and it's so encouraging. The message is absolutely beautiful. And so hopefully this series gives you an idea of the kind of person that Jesus is. He actually goes out of his way to humanize other people. And Jesus' message is for all people, including you and me. So I hope this encouraged you. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. And we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then... Be encouraged to know that you are part of what God has in store.